At the risk of adding to the problem, uh, we live in a world, don't we, that is utterly saturated in hyperbole and exaggeration. And uh, recently, I was looking at an online review website, and this really came home to me again as I heard a pizzeria, of all things, being described as earth-shatteringly good. Now, I love a margarita as much as the next man, but I'm certain that though this would have almost certainly been a good one, uh, perhaps the very foundations of our planet weren't in fact undermined. And in cases like this, it's relatively simple to translate what people actually mean from the, the wild exaggeration that they use, but perhaps over time, the long-term effect of all this exaggeration that we're surrounded with in our world is that we start to doubt whether anything could really be earth-shattering. Anything really could be uh, incredible, awesome, amazing. Uh, and the reason I'm beginning this way is because we are going to be looking at a passage today in, from the Bible, which I think can justifiably and without a hint of hyperbole be described in exactly these terms. J.C. Ryle wrote that this passage is the most remarkable chapter in the whole Bible. That's quite a statement. The most remarkable chapter in the whole Bible. We have no line to fathom its depth, he said. And as if to prove this point, uh, the Protestant reformer, Philip Melanchthon, preached for 41 weeks on today's text. And on the 41st week, apologised to his church uh, that he had only managed to scratch the surface. Uh, imagine yourself, if you will, on a boat out in the ocean and there's no land around you and you go for a swim. Today, we are, it's like we are taking one breath and we can, in that one breath, explore maybe the first six feet of the ocean, but never forget that there is like six miles beneath our feet as we dive in to today's passage. Today, we are going to discover the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. So if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, prepare yourself to be provoked and challenged. And if you're not, then get ready to discover what this faith is all about. Now, why do I say that today's passage is so significant? I think there's at least three reasons. The first is this, that we are dealing with a, a, a prayer that Jesus says right at the end of his life. So as we, we come to this portion of scripture, we're finding Jesus right at the end of his earthly ministry. Uh, for the last few years, he's been traveling and healing and teaching with the same group of 12 disciples. And uh, as we come to this, he's just enjoyed his uh, famous Last Supper. Uh, Judas has uh, snuck off to betray him. And we hear Jesus praying at this particular moment. I think the last, the words are, are, the, are the words that people say towards the end of their life. 
I think, have a special weight. Uh, we would imagine, I think, that, that at that particular time in your life, uh, as you know that the end is near, you would want to get off your chest only the things that were, that were really important to you. You'd want to say the things that, that really uh, carried your heart. And today, I think that is the first reason why we can imagine that the words that we're reading today are so important because they, these are the words of a dying man, a man who knows that within hours he will be arrested, tried and hanging on a cross. And we are reading these words today. And the second reason I think that why the, these words are so important is because today we are going to discover the very or get an insight rather into the very uh, relationship that powered Jesus's incredible life on earth. Um, you know, when we think about Jesus uh, teaching crowds to turn the other cheek, or we, we think about him touching leprous people that nobody wanted anything to do with and healing them, when we think about him intervening to save a woman caught in adultery from being stoned to death. We think of this remarkable man who, whether or not you think he is God, lived the most consequential life in the history of our planet. We think, what made this man tick? What made him who he was? What, what was the kind of the, the energizing spirit within him? Well, today we are going to discover we're going to discover that it wasn't the crowds that one minute cheered him and the other minute called for him to be crucified. It wasn't even his disciples that, that one minute were surrounding him and, and the next were abandoning him, him to his uh, wrongful arrest. We're going to discover that there was a relationship at the heart of who Jesus was that really powered his life and his ministry in the passages as we read today. The third reason I think that this passage is so powerful and so important is because the clear teaching of the Bible is that God is three and one. That he is a community of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons and yet at the same time existing in perfect and mysterious unity. In today's passage, therefore, when we read of Jesus praying, we are going to read nothing less than God talking to God. We are permitted to have a window into the very community of God that has existed eternally and from which all life flows. You know, many of us, when we wander out into the hills or, or we gather together in worship, we, we have a sense of God's presence with us. We have a sense of him even speaking to us. And that is true and good and wonderful. But I just want to draw your attention to to the remarkable thing that you're holding in your hands this morning. This is a record of the very words of God as he talks to 
his, to God in that community. We hold in our hands today something of incalculable value, something that is there for us and for our benefit. So just three of the amazing reasons why this is such an important part of scripture today. And what we're going to be looking at, and the suspense is finally over, is John chapter 17. But I don't want you uh, to, to turn to it. So, you know, maybe you're sitting on your sofa right now. You've got your coffee in one hand. You know, you're sitting there in your, in your dressing gown. You know, don't feel the need to get up. You just stay where you are. Because I, I don't want you to turn to it for reasons that will shortly become clear. What... Um, as I say, what we're looking at today is a prayer of Jesus. And we're looking at it actually as part of a series on prayer. Uh, and there's much to learn from this pivotal moment in Jesus's life on earth about his, his posture in prayer and about his priorities in prayer. But it seemed to me as I was reading and studying and praying about this that neither of these things will mean much to us or do much for us unless we have first grasped the wonder of what Jesus says in verse 3 of this chapter. Um, and because we don't have 41 weeks to go over this whole chapter together, I thought we would mainly focus in verse 3 today. So I'm going to read verses 1 to verses 2 and a half, and then I'm going to ask you a question. So here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's when he'd been speaking to his disciples in the, in the, at the Last Supper, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him and this is eternal life dot 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 Da-da. now i wonder how you would finish that sentence in verse three and this is eternal life now the reason i ask that is this is an incredibly important question. Eternal life in many ways is the New Testament summary for Christian salvation. For what it means to turn your life over to Jesus. John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but would have, what? Eternal life. Eternal life. And here we have Jesus on the edge of defining what that eternal life is. And this is eternal life. What is it? How would you finish that sentence. It seems to me that it's no exaggeration to say that we can know very little about what it means to follow Jesus if we don't know 
what the essence of this eternal life really is. I have been a Christian for 19 years this summer, almost half my life. And I've got to be honest that as I have contemplated and prayed through and read about the, 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 the second half of this sentence over the last few weeks, I found myself being completely undone and feeling again like, like a beginner, like a novice, like a child wanting to know more about what this faith is all about. And if you're listening today and you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian, then I would simply say this to you, that whatever information you have picked up about Christianity to this point, you have not yet fully understood who Jesus is and why he matters if you have not grasped what he means by this phrase, eternal life. The great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, here is the whole object, the ultimate, the goal of all Christian experience and all Christian endeavour. This, beyond any question, is the central message of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. Good grief, this matters. Well, I want you first to see how he does not end this sentence. For example, he doesn't say, and this is eternal life, that they would all go to heaven when they die. He doesn't say, and this is eternal life, that they would all be forgiven their sins. He doesn't say, and this is eternal life, that all their hopes and dreams for their future would come true. Nor does he say, and this is eternal life, that they would all believe the right things. He doesn't say, and this is eternal life, that they would live good lives and do the right things morally and fight for social justice. Now, some of these things are important. Some of them are very important. But none of them, interestingly, is what he actually says. So what does he actually say? Well, the suspense is over. He says this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For Jesus, eternal life turns out not to be what it is popularly taken to mean in our world today. That's to say, it's not simply life after death, but it is about a quality of life that can be enjoyed on earth now. It is, in a sense, life that is so 
lifeish, that even death cannot put a stop to it. And do you know, in a sense, this should not be the surprise that it is. And maybe it's not to you like it was to me. Because it's perfectly in step with the whole biblical story. The Bible paints the main problem with the world. There's another question you might ask yourself. I wonder what you think the main problem with the world is right now. Well, the Bible paints the main problem with the world is this, that people do not know God. We do not know him. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, we read this. He, that's Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. And you see, there are consequences to the fact that we don't know him. And one of the consequences is that human beings are often, their lives are a kind of successions of searches for fulfillment. You know, sometimes we, we seek fulfillment, something that will, that will make our lives make sense. And we, we seek it in, in sometimes in our jobs. We sometimes seek it in, in relationships. You know, we move from one relationship to the next. We're seeking some kind of external fulfillment. Sometimes we seek it in religious activity, in, in moral activity, in, in fighting for the right things, for changes in society. We're seeking from outside of ourselves some kind of external fulfillment. And sometimes in our in our um, in our culture, we're told to, to, to stop all this and just you know, tell ourselves that we're enough and that we're okay on our own. And yet many, the experience of many people is that this just doesn't work. That actually we need something outside of ourselves to fulfill ourselves. And, and many of us, if we're really honest, actually, instead of fulfillment, really what we're seeking is distraction from the search for fulfillment. And we're seeking, well, God, my goodness, there's enough of that around, isn't there? And working your way through the Netflix back catalogue and the Amazon Prime and the Disney Plus, gosh, there's a lot of distraction around. St. Augustine, this is not a new phenomenon, St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th centuries, he understood this. And he said this, you, God, have made us for yourself. We are made for God. And our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. I mean, is it only me, I wonder, who identifies with this restlessness? I know that everyone's life in lockdown has looked really quite different and there have been some people, thank God, who have been working unbelievably hard and many who have not had anything to do at all and I guess our lives have been something somewhere in the middle and many of the things the natural rhythms of our lives have continued but lots of other maybe distracting things have stopped and I I guess I have had to come to terms with the fact that there are lots of things in my life that I was looking to 
for satisfaction, looking to for fulfillment outside of God. Maybe you feel like that too. Isaiah 55 says this, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. God says, hear that your soul may live. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are restless, all you who are seeking from your job or your boyfriend or from Netflix, some kind of fulfillment or maybe even just numb distraction. Come to me and I will give you rest. In contrast to all this restlessness, John Wesley said that knowing God is both the way to and the essence of everlasting happiness. So very quickly, <clears throat> the next obvious question is this, what does it mean to know God? Well, what it means is knowledge through experience. The word that is used for know in verse 3 is the Greek word ginosko. And this Greek word carries additional connotations that aren't always present in our English language. And crucially, the knowing indicates an experience. There is a difference, is there not, about, or between knowing about something and actually knowing something. And perhaps the best way to illustrate this is through, this is one of my prized possessions, this is a lonely planet guide for coastal California. It's been well thumbed because 10 years ago, I used this and, and my wife Lizzie used this on our honeymoon when we drove down the west coast of California. And interestingly, before we went on that holiday, we wanted to know about where we were going. And so we, we bought this book and we very excitedly kind of read our way through it and we found interesting places that we thought, oh, that sounds so cool, we definitely want to do that. And, oh, we've got to go there. And, oh, yeah, I can see how that city works and we can find the pl good places there. This is the place that we should go. You know, we're learning lots about coastal California. But it's interesting that that is different, is it not, from the experience that we had when we actually went to these places. We actually stood in these places. We visited these sites. We can, we can now remember what they fe it felt like to be there. In fact, when I come back to this book now and I read it, or a glance at it again, I read it very differently because now this isn't just knowledge about something. This, these are reminders of something that I have actually experienced. This is the kind of knowing 
that is possible with God, knowing him by experience. And we get hints of what this looks like over the rest of this chapter through Jesus's prayer. We don't have time to turn to them, but I just want to give you four quick things that, that, that we can see are signs of what it means to not just know about God, but to know him. And the first is this, there's this incredible intimacy in Jesus's prayer. Father, he says at the beginning, this is the the central relationship that has driven all of Jesus's ministry right from the start, right to the end. You know, the, Jesus's ministry begins with him being baptized. Uh, the spirit of God descends on him a dove, like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And right at the end of Jesus's life, his very last words on earth, Father, into my hands, into your hands, sorry, I commit my spirit. From beginning to end, Jesus's life was driven by this intimate, close relationship with his father. And Jesus is saying, this is eternal life, that you can know this intimacy too. Not just intimacy though, but you can see that the priority of Jesus in this prayer is his desire to glorify the father, that his life would be about bringing glory to God, that this ultimately is how a human being is fulfilled in living their lives, not for themselves, not for their own glory, not for their own benefit, not for their own legacy, but actually living out for the glory of the one who made them. The third thing is that you can see Jesus' priority in his whole earthly ministry was showing who God is to others. He says, I have manifested your name. In other words, I have shown people what you are like. And surely that has to be the priority of anyone's life who really has seen God. We've seen him and he's so wonderful and he's so beautiful and he's so compelling that the most natural thing on earth is to want to show this God to others. And, and when people have a thought, a, 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 maybe a, a view of God which doesn't align with this incredible, wonderful Father that we've come to know, we want to say, hang on, no, 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 that's not what God's like. This is what God's like. And the fourth thing is this, that Jesus has this extraordinary confidence that he is loved. He says in verse 26 of this chapter, the love with which you have loved me, I want it to be in them. Do you know that you are loved? Do you, I mean, I don't just know in theory. I'm not saying no in theory. Do you know in the core of your being, by experience, that you are loved? Surely, this is what it means to know God by experience. But you know, there's something even more wonderful than knowing God by experience. And it's this, knowing God by indwelling. This is where the coastal California illustration slightly breaks down. Because it's one thing to read about California. It's another thing to experience California, 
But then it's another thing again for California to become part of you. It's almost like, like I went, and you, you do find this actually when people kind of go traveling, they kind of come back and, and you know, they've got, you know, the haircut, you know, they've maybe got some kind of shark's tooth round their neck, they've got a tattoo, you know, they're seeing what the, the world a bit differently. And it's almost like what's happened is the experience has become part of them. It's like, it's like California became part of them. Sometimes even I've met people who have gone on holiday for a couple of weeks and they've come back speaking in a different accent. It's extraordinary how quickly they become, it's almost like they become the place. And that is just the merest hint of what it means to know God because what Jesus speaks about in this chapter is not just that we would know him and, or not just that we would know about him and not just that we would know him by experience but actually that Jesus would dwell within us, that he would come to live within us, that God himself would come to live in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is eternal life, that we would know not just that he loves us and that he's with us, but that we would know he is in us. He, through his spirit, has come to take up residence in our lives. This is knowing God. And so finally, the question is this. How can we know God more? And if you were to read this whole chapter, you would see Jesus gets into the whole area of sanctification. And sanctification, big, long word, Bible word. And, and often when we hear it, or at least when I have heard it in the past, what I've taken it to mean is that we need to stop doing certain things. So we need to become better people. So there's certain habits that you have. There's certain sins that you commit and you need to be sanctified and you need to be, you need to change and you need to stop doing these things. And, and there, there's not, no truth in that. But that is not really the heart of what sanctification means. Sanctification is really this that God has come to live in you by his spirit and you in response and alignment to that truth start to become like him. The point is that you start to look like Jesus. How does that happen? Well, Gosh, it's simple, but it's not easy. Mark, Matthew, sorry, chapter 16. Jesus then told us his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, lose, would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sanctifying Becoming sanctified is actually a process of dying to yourself. It's a process of, of uprooting 
all the other kings in our heart, all the other things that our hearts have gone after, all the other things that have taken the place of God in our life, uprooting them and installing Jesus as the king of our lives. That is the process of sanctification and the goal is that we are conformed to his image, that we begin to, our lives begin to look like Jesus. You were made to look like him. Eternal life is knowing him and becoming like him. This is such an important thing and I want to end with this that we must ask ourselves, is this our Christianity? Have we been so arrested by his grace that nothing else in the world will do for us? Is this what your life is all about? Is this what my life is all about? Is this the great business of our time on earth? in the way it was, for example, for Paul? Do we identify with with his words? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. And for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do we identify with Paul's sense that simply knowing him is better than all this world can offer? I contend that we will not understand Jesus' prayer life until we first understand this. But this is the invitation to come to Jesus, to know him by the power of his spirit at work in our life, transforming us, making us more like him, to experience him within us, changing us day by day, to know the intimacy of relationship with our loving father in heaven and living out to glorify him. Friends, if we knew this, we would know what prayer is all about. So let's pray this week, even as you take times in your discussion groups afterwards to to pray and to seek him and to see him and be changed by him. Amen.